Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing much better than last week. How are you? Good. Me as well. Did did the crud go through your house or? Uh, it did. I was actually the last one to get it and somehow the last one to fully get rid of it. So yeah, huh. that's been, it's been fun. I had that super annoying tickle in your throat cough that just lasted oh forever and it was one of those things where I had gotten you know I was feeling better I wasn't sick anymore and I was trying to get back to my normal life but I was still plagued by this cough and people don't like it and the stares that come with it yeah cough. yeah <laughs> people really do not like it when you cough anywhere around them no. or in the same mm. building as them or nope. anywhere uh, coughing is no longer allowed as a human uh, no race. So, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> hold your coughs, people. Um, but I'm I'm doing much better now. So yeah, I'm happy to hear that you are feeling better as well. Good. Yeah. Same here. Um, I I was on the opposite. I was the beginning of. I was one of the carriers into my home, and I was telling Mandy before this, my husband's sick now, which is awful, and I have to go out of town tomorrow. So it's like, oh, man, just I'm I'm 
elated. Super awful I hope for he, him. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I feel so bad for him. It's going to be, I mean, you know, the fact that I can't be here to take care of him in sickness and in health. I would have edited that in my vows if I really understood how he was whenever he was sick. <laughs> I think we all would have. They didn't let I us mean, get, a, they, they have to let us get a glimpse into that first before we can decide. <laughs> a man wrote those vows clearly because a woman would have been like, absolutely not. Never doing this. This is absolutely horrible. I've seen you blow your nose. This is awful. So anyway, but everybody here is doing better and we're sounding better. And I am excited to get into this week's story, Mandy. I am too. This is going to be a big one, a big long story that we have because there truly is just so much to talk about. I predict that there will be a little bit of side chatter going on in this um, in right. this story between us because there's a lot to say. There's a lot of shocking things going on in the story. So maybe it's just because I'm not very pop culture-y and I just don't really follow along with the happenings in high society, but it always amazes me when I hear about a relatively high-profile story that I have never heard of before. I Mandy. often ask myself if I live under a rock, Melissa, and I think you would say that yes. I do live under a rock. <laughs> this in our notes, like we have a Google Doc we share, and I wrote, this has gone too far whenever I saw that you had never heard of this story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the topic, uh, the the main topic, I guess, or one of the theme, main themes of the story is not something that I am too invested in. Um, sure. That sure. That is wrestling. I don't really get into wrestling but that's just because I've never really had a reason to. I've never been exposed to it. So I didn't have a brother who wrestled or a dad right. who wrestled or anyone who did that. So I just don't have an appreciation and a love for the sport. So I don't follow along. So that kind of story doesn't really catch my attention typically. But this week's uh, story definitely caught my attention. And uh, some of you may have heard of the story, but there's probably a lot of people like me who have never heard of the story either. But we're going to do it in two parts because, as I said before, there's a lot. There's a lot. And there's, and there's a lot that we can do just today in this first part. <laughs> and it's going to take us the whole episode just to cover totally. the background about this story. So that is what we're going to do today. So we hear about people all the time who have had their hand in many hobbies and they pour money into several of their various interests. And I always joke that maybe I need to be doing more with my life because I don't really have that many hobbies or things that I do just for fun. But you know what? Maybe that's actually just because I don't have the funds required to become invested or obsessed with multiple different things. I really have a strict one hobby maximum because I have mouths to feed. The man at the center of the story this week would not be able to relate. Born with a silver spoon in his mouth is one way to put it, but John Dupont was pretty dang lucky when he was born into one of the richest families in America. DuPont is a name you've likely heard, or if you're a racing fan, you've seen it plastered across the hood of a very famous NASCAR car. Melissa, do you know who drove that car? Was that the father's son, the father died? No. Nope. Sound like sound like I'm saying father's son, the Holy Ghost. Hearts. Jeff Gordon? It was Jeff Gordon. Very okay, good. Never mind. That's a little NASCAR trivia for you. Wow, I wasn't expecting <laughs> that from you. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that from me either. <laughs> so DuPont is a company with quite a long history in this country, having been founded in 1802 and currently still operating as a multi-billion dollar corporation. And it's really not any surprise why. DuPont is now one of the largest producers of chemicals and science-based products in the world. They are responsible for the invention of many materials that most of us couldn't imagine living without, such as Teflon, Mylar, and Lycra. They have also produced gunpowder, chemicals, explosives, plastics, varnishes, insecticides, and more. 
it's really not hard to understand how they've made it to being one of the oldest companies we have here because the demand for things that they make is so high, they'll probably never go out of business. How is that for job security? We got to get in on that. Is it too late to become a DuPont? Do you think they'll (laughs) adopt us? I don't. Yeah, I don't think you can just become one. Crap. We can maybe petition them to adopt us. We need a plan B. (laughs) Yeah. So according to Forbes, in 2020, the DuPont family was ranked as the 17th richest family, having a combined net worth of $16 billion. Suffice it to say, every person born into this family since 1802 has been obscenely rich from birth, including John DuPont, the man at the center of our story this week. John DuPont was born on November 22, 1938, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to his parents, William DuPont Jr. and Jean Austin DuPont. John was the youngest of four children who were all the great-great-grandchildren of E.I. DuPont, founder of this world-changing company. Although John had three other siblings, he really may as well have been an only child. His siblings were all much older than him. By the time that John was actually going to grade school, his siblings were all married and living on their own, so he had no real close relationship with any of them. Saying that John grew up privileged would really be an understatement. His family home was a 6,000-square-foot replica of Montpelier, the former home of President James Madison in Virginia. The mansion was situated on an 800-acre farm in Newton Square, Pennsylvania. The DuPonts loved all things equestrian, and John's parents raised and trained thoroughbred horses and Welsh ponies. William kept a racing stable for his horses, and he called the stables Foxcatcher. In addition to raising the Welsh ponies, John's mother, Jean, also raised beagles as show dogs. She was also big into hunting and chasing foxes with her rich friends at the Randor Hunt Club. That is a hobby I just can't imagine my having in my life. Going out with my friends with our dogs and like fox chasing, fox hunting. In this century? Are they hunting them or just just chasing them? I don't don't understand. Yeah, I don't. (laughs) I think we shouldn't look too far into this one because I don't think we'll like what we find. Probably not. (laughs) So John's parents divorced whenever he was two and his father, William, moved out, leaving John and his mother, Jean, at the estate. Sadly, this was the end of John having much of a relationship with his father, who pretty much disappeared once the divorce was final. William ended up getting married to a tennis player named Margaret Osborne, and the new life he created didn't seem to include his toddler son. When John got older, he would actually try to make appointments to see his father, but William would often reject the appointments and wouldn't meet up with John. That's like one of the grossest things I've ever heard. Yeah, that's, that's terrible. So this, of course, leaves John feeling abandoned and alone. He really spent years and years just looking for a father and being rejected by the only one he knew. Mm. Plus, if you think about his older siblings grew up with this two-parent household, they've all lived this life, and then he comes along two years later, his dad's out, and he can't schedule an appointment with him. That's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. So with John's father out of the picture, he had to lean on his mom, Jean, and they became extremely close. So much so that his feelings towards his mom could be described as deep devotion by the time John was older. John saw his mom every day and shared absolutely everything with her. But John's life was still very lonely. Even though he was close with his mom, he would still eat his meals alone in his room until he was about 13. One of the maids would actually bring his food to him. Due to lack of socializing and spending most of his time with his mom, John's social skills were not up to par and he was always lonely. 
An article in People magazine by Bill Hewitt said that John's early life was, quote, a curious mixture of stifling privilege and emotional isolation. I think that it's hard to say that this is a beautiful way to describe somebody, but this author like nailed it describing like his assessment of how John's life was like totally mixture of privilege that was really so stifling because nobody has the kind of life that he had. He was already very isolated from the rest of society just by being in the family he was in. And then on top of that, as you said, he had all of this isolation, you know, not having his siblings around, not having a family unit and just becoming really close and attached to his mom. So people around town and neighbors of John's thought he was really, really weird. In fact, if John wasn't filthy rich, some people say he probably wouldn't have been treated as nicely as he actually was. One neighbor said that most of the people around town thought of John as what they called a loon, but everybody was always polite and respectful towards him anyway. John never had much luck with girls. Even though he was a DuPont, girls thought he was odd and, quote, creepy. He had yellow teeth and he walked with a hunch. And as we said before, his personality wasn't really anything impressing. He graduated from a private prep school in 1957 and threw a party for his high school class. Although he wasn't the popular kid in school, this party was one of the happiest moments in his life. The night was a huge success and John loved being the center of attention for once. After high school, John went on to the University of Pennsylvania, but he didn't stay there for long. He ended up finishing college at the University of Miami, earning a degree in biology. Science had always been an interest of John's, and when he was a young man, he became passionate about ornithology, which, as you know and I know and everyone listening to this, that's the study of very real birds. birds. (laughs) Yes. The study of birds. So by high school, he has this huge collection of preserved birds, birds' eggs, and seashells. And when we say a huge collection, we mean literally tens of thousands of these things. What do you do with tens of thousands of anything? I don't know. This is like got hoarding written all over it. Like this just makes me feel a little itchy to even read. I like whenever I am like stressed out, my favorite thing to do is just throw things out. And I have no emotional attachment to anything when I get in these moods. But like I can't imagine seeing what someone actually said was one million bird's eggs oh, and oh my gosh. 100,000 preserved birds. Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Are they like snowflakes? Is every egg a little bit different? I don't really get it. So later on, he becomes the founder of the Delaware Museum of Natural History near Wilmington, Delaware, where he featured his enormous collection. He himself was actually the director of this museum. Another one of his noteworthy accomplishments is that he actually identified a Philippines parrot and a Mexican sparrow, both of which ended up being named after him. The fact that John had this endless supply of money to work with made it really easy for him to get wrapped up in this bird hobby, which, yeah, 100,000 eggs, that's, you got to have some money there. But this really wasn't his only hobby. So if there's one thing to know about John, it's that he has a lot of hobbies. And when he becomes fixated on something new, he goes all in with it. He's obsessed as evidenced by these hundreds of thousands of dead birds. When you have this net worth of $200 million, you can really do just about anything your heart desires. So John continues to collect things into his adulthood and these collections become gigantic. It's not really just related to bird things anymore either. He collects everything from expensive silverware to tin toys to stamps to fine Staffordshire china. He even collected 
horse-drawn carriages, which is truly <laughs> baffling to me because – How many do you need? <laughs> I feel like after you have two, it feels like a little too much, like your right. collection should be complete. And so he even has one that's in the movie version of My Fair Lady, um, according I mean, to that's one of pretty his employees. Cool. But that's sure. like the only one that you need then. Yes, then that's the one you have. You have that as your representative for all the carriages you have. Right. So – he, it's too much for me. He also has this large collection of guns and a tank that he bought at an army surplus sale. Of course, it no longer has weapons, but he even has a Silver War Gatling gun in his collection. And what's a gun collector to do with all those guns? Build a shooting range, of course. And so John builds this large indoor range on the estate, and he named it the J. Edgar Police Pistol Training Center, which I'm assuming is named after J. Edgar Hoover the founder of the FBI, right? Like that's what his whole hat tip was there, I guess. And so he then invited local police agencies to come there and practice shooting. Many officers ended up taking him up on this offer. Of course, the guy's got like unlimited bullets and you can practice shooting at his indoor shooting range. What officer wouldn't want to do that? Right. And you have to think like this estate is so massive. It's like a little it's not that it's a city like with stores in it or, or anything like that, but there's so much going on on this estate. Like he's got all these things. He's got the stables. He's got the shooting range. And it's all very nice, of course. This is like a multi-million dollar estate. So I imagine these officers were like, yeah, this is really nice. We'd love to use these amazing facilities for our training purposes. And I, of course, they took him up on the offer. If too. nothing else, just to be nosy. Right. I, mean, I would. Right. So John's interest in helping the police really seemed to kind of come out of left field, but the shooting range wasn't all he even had to offer. John also had a hunting camp on the farm that officers came to every year. He also donated bulletproof vests to the agencies and even let them use his helicopter for searches. Several officers actually lived at houses that were on the estate, which is just wild to me. So in the 70s, John becomes a volunteer officer of the Newton Square Police Department. He actually wore a uniform and he rode around with officers on calls. He also bought a replica police car and made traffic stops outside of his estate and handed out official looking citations. Hold he on. Would scold people for driving too fast. Yes, Mandy, do you have a problem with this? Do you I have do. a problem with him doing this? <laughs> I didn't think this, I, I legitimately thought this was an actual crime. Like, you can't impersonate it. Is. You can't put lights on your car and pull people over and say that you're an officer. Like, what? <laughs> And like make up your own citations. It's like whenever you play like pretend with your kids and they like give you a citation or what, you know, they're like, you're you're speeding. That's literally (laughs) what this is. Like it's so bizarre to me that an adult human would do want to do this. Yeah. But the police who really should care about this didn't really seem to mind at all because John's basically a friend of the police at this point. So when John does these things, it's like John's being John. Anyone else is going to get in trouble for it, but look at all he's doing for the department, right? So, for example, John would ride around on his estate shooting at deer from the window of a moving car. Obviously, this is not legal or allowed, but officers just turn the other cheek. And, of course, this leads to John feeling like he's basically above the law and he could do anything he wanted. We're going to get back into so many more details after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Is your company or business having a tough time hiring the people you need the most? If you are, you aren't alone. In fact, there are 46% more jobs being posted now than before the pandemic, but there are 44% fewer candidates applying to each job. 
You need to find great candidates and you needed to find them yesterday. Workable is here to take care of the work of the hiring process. Workable helps accelerate every single step of the hiring process, from finding the right candidate to the actual hire. And they do that by helping cast the widest net possible and posting jobs to all the job boards, more than 200 total, with just one click. Plus, they'll bring your company into the 21st century regarding the hiring process by helping you evaluate and hire quickly by using modern tools like video interviews and e-signatures. They'll even automate those repetitive tasks, things like scheduling interviews, so you can go back to running your company and making those new hires. So whether you're running a coffee shop or a retail store or a corporate job, get back to doing what you do best and let Workable help you hire smarter. Start hiring today with a risk-free 15-day trial. If you hire during the trial, which many do, it won't cost a thing. Just go to workable.com to start hiring. Workable is hiring made easy. There are lots of different omega-3 supplements on the market, but let us tell you why Iwi, that's like Kiwi without the K, is our go-to. For starters, if you haven't used omega-3 supplements before, let's just say all omega-3 supplements are not the same. That's right. One of my biggest hangups with omega-3 has been the nasty fishy burps after. You know the ones. But with Iwi, I'm skipping the middle fish, and thanks to Iwi's patented formula, the omega-3 goes straight to my bloodstream, which means there's more absorption and more health benefits for me. Once you hit your 30s, you have to start thinking about fun things like your car's airbag warranty or your bad VLDL cholesterol. So I feel great knowing that in a clinical study, Iwi cholesterol helped reduce bad VLDL cholesterol by 25% on average in just three months' time, which is really incredible. And no matter how old or young you are, if you're like us and you're looking to live a healthier lifestyle, then do what we did and add Iwi to your self-care supplements to help support your brain, heart, vision, and overall wellness. It's never too late or too early to start taking Iwi. Go to iwilife.com slash moms and use code MOMS22 to save 30% on your first purchase of any Iwi product. Take advantage of this limited time offer today. I-W-I-L-I-F-E dot com slash moms, code MOMS22 for 30% off your first purchase. iwilife.com slash moms, code MOMS22. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were really just introducing our main character, John DuPont, who was an heir to the massive, massive DuPont family fortune. Uh, And we were talking about kind of some of the quirky behaviors that he had and some of the odd things that he did, such as getting a replica police car and handing out fake citations in front of his estate. Oh, my gosh. So we also mentioned that he had gone to college in Miami and graduated with a biology degree. So during the time that he spent in Miami for college, he was on the varsity swimming team, and he became so obsessed with swimming that it became a dream of his to compete in the Olympics. So we're not knocking him for his dreams, but according to John's coach, he just wasn't destined for the Olympics. I mean, think about how long Olympic athletes have been doing their sport in most cases. I'm not saying in all cases, but in most cases – Olympic-level athletes have been doing their sport a lot longer than just for a few years in college. Right, right. His coach told People Magazine that John was, quote, a pretty darn good swimmer, but not good enough for the Olympics, end quote. So once John realized that this dream wasn't going to come to fruition, he decided to set his sights on a different Olympic goal, which was the pentathlon. So if you don't know, the pentathlon combines five different sports. One of them is swimming, but then it also includes horseback riding, fencing, shooting, and running. So 
this guy who was just told, you know, he's not good enough to be an Olympic swimmer now wants to be an Olympic pentathlete instead. I don't really sure. know how he jumped from that point, to, you know, from where he was right. at, but um, that's what he decided he wanted to do. So just like he had done with his other hobbies and his other interests in the past, he used his never-ending money supply to have actual training facilities built on his property, including an Olympic-sized indoor pool. But no matter what he did or how much money he put into it, he was never good enough to qualify for the Olympics, which is really sad because obviously he just was like giving it his all. Like he had this strong desire to be good enough to go to the Olympics. And it's just sad to me that he spent so much money towards something that he really just – it wasn't for him. You know, the, yeah, the Olympics like, isn't for everyone. <laughs> true. But like his money, it doesn't even feel like it's his money. It's just like nonsense. Like right. we can never – ever grasp that you know what I mean like people that like work their whole lives and work five jobs to do this and he's right. just like I'm gonna make a little uh withdrawal today and open up an entire swimming facility right. for myself <laughs> it's like okay well I'm having a hard time feeling too bad there for you buddy but I, yeah. I get it. it yeah it sucks but yeah yeah I mean it's true it's true um this is actually something kind of funny and kind of in a weird way but just going along with that talking about how you know, this, the opulence, you know, of everything right. that he surrounded himself with. Um, one of the sources actually said that inside the indoor pool on one of the walls, there was this huge, huge mosaic talking about one million piece mosaic that was imported from Florence. And this mosaic was depicting John performing all of the five no. um, pentathlon disciplines. He was like pictured as if he was doing all of these things. No. <laughs> Mm -mm. That is just over the top, like narcissistic. I can't even. I don't have that ability. Like, <laughs> even if I was in the Olympics, I don't think I would be able to even no. really post a picture of myself from the actual Olympics up no. somewhere. Let okay, my so dream I, center. Yes, yeah, so I struggle really bad with like imposter syndrome, right? So, sure. like, even if something good or really exciting happens to me um, or within my life, it's almost like I have embarrassment about sharing it with other people. I don't know why, but I, I don't know how to explain it. But there is no way. I don't care if I even was the Olympic pentathlon winner. Mm -mm. I would never get a mosaic of myself in any part of my house. <laughs> like, I'd like just... to go on record and saying there will never be a mosaic of me ever, even <laughs> cleaning dishes. Like there's just nothing in my life I'm that good at that I should no. ever be be memorialized in that way. No way. Oh my gosh. That's Please, I'd add that to my will. No, no, <laughs> no mosaics. mosaics. <laughs> For sure. So although John didn't make it to the Olympics, he did actually win the Australian Pentathlon Championship in 1965, which sounds like it could be really impressive. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the New York Times set us straight here and told us that it really wasn't that uh, big of a deal. This championship is essentially bought and paid for, not really one on skill or talent. So three years later, John hosted the U.S. Championship on his family's estate, Lister Hall Farm. And... The closest that he ever actually got to competing in the Olympics was in 1976 when he managed the U.S. pentathlon team at the Games in Montreal. Although he had been a bachelor up to this point, in 1983, he married a woman named Gail Wink. She was 29 years old, and she was an occupational therapist that he met after he injured his hand in an auto accident. He was 44 at the time they got married. Of course, this was a very lavish wedding with 500 guests. And according to CNN, 
taking a wife was a condition of John's inheritance. So really something he felt like, you know, I'm Why 44. Why is that not surprising? I know. I know. It sounds very like this something family. that would be, yeah, a condition of inheritance to billions of dollars. But um, so he, you know, kind of felt maybe like, hey, I'm 44, time's a ticking, I better take a wife. So, which I hate that term, take away. Lucky for Gail. <laughs> I don't know why I just said take away. Oh, <laughs> yeah. because because that's what CNN said. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like the phrasing of take away. Take away. Yeah. Yeah. It's not great. <laughs> no, I don't like that. You're right. So in the early days of the marriage, though, John seemed very worried that he or Gail were going to be kidnapped. Gail said, quote, he wanted to know when I would go out and would tell me to never go to the same place at the same time on the same day of the week, end quote. Around a month into their marriage, John began descending into these alcohol-fueled rages. He actually threw Gail into a fireplace, tried to choke her, threatened her with a knife, and tried to push her out of his car as he was pulling away from the house one time. On a February night in 1984, John entered the bedroom and turned the television to a channel featuring patriotic music. And when Gail asked him to just turn down the volume... John pulled a gun from a dresser drawer, placed it to her temple, and said, quote, you know what they do with Russian spies? They shoot them, end quote. So this is all kind of coming out of nowhere. All of a sudden, yeah. his uh, behavior has changed. He's always been a little erratic. He's always been a little bit odd. Everybody in town has always been like, oh, you know, like you said, that's just John doing John things. But now, all of a sudden, he is taking a turn, and his erratic behaviors are becoming scary and violent and not just, you know, weird. Right. So a month after this incident, Gail moved out and John ended up filing for a divorce. Gail later sued him for $5 million and they settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. I think Gail deserved every dollar of that $5 million. million. Oh my gosh. So after years of obsessing about the Olympics, John finally moved on to something new in the early 1980s around the same time he was starting to lose it at home. Now he no longer cared so much about pentathlons, but he was very invested in the world of freestyle wrestling because, of course, that makes sense. The next step is freestyle (laughs) wrestling. And so just as John had done with all of his other previous hobbies and interests, he dumps a lot of money into this one, too. So in 1986, he established a varsity wrestling team at Pennsylvania's Villanova University, and he served as the head coach and honorably paid himself a salary of $1 per year. The head coach with his many years of wrestling experience. I know. This is this whole story is just bananas. Money can buy you whatever. Like <laughs> it is just crazy. At least at this point, it, it, there's just everything. It's like, oh, okay, well, then you can be the head coach. So he funded scholarships. He paid for the staff and many of the expenses. And his name was put on a pool and basketball pavilion. Which I'm sure he loved. Of course. It's probably like a mini mosaic right underneath it. He was like, can we just do one line of it? Just the swimming one (laughs) under here. So further trouble arose when one of John's former assistant coaches actually sued him, claiming that John made sexual advances towards him and then fired him for refusing them. John said that this claim was ridiculous and he settled the matter out of court. But during depositions for this case, other wrestlers on the team actually said that John could be inappropriate at times. He had a custom grappling move that he called, this is so gross, the Foxcatcher 5, which actually involved grabbing the opponent's genitals. Mm. I don't know a lot about wrestling, but I don't think (laughs) there's a genital pulling one. I just don't remember that. I don't think that's an officially um, recognized move in wrestling. No, 
Yeah, no, I feel like that one should be shunned. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly after his divorce from Gail, John builds this $600,000 facility at his estate. It was 14,000 square feet of space for state-of-the-art wrestling training. He called it the Foxcatcher National Training Center. National? He is like, these are just very grandiose. Like he is. It is. That's all I have to say. It's just a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. You've got it. So the compound has four wrestling mats, some of the largest ones in the world at that time, a training room, offices for coaches, a weight room, a pool, lockers, a kitchen, and a dining room. Athletes could come there and lift weights. They could be coached on the fundamentals of freestyle wrestling competitions, and they could watch wrestling matches for analysis purposes. He hired several coaches, and by 1991, he had two coaches employed full-time with a $70,000 annual salary and six part-time coaches making around $30,000 a year. And these were pretty big names in coaching. One of them was actually a former Olympic coach, while another was a four-time Bulgarian world champion, and others had won Olympic gold medals themselves. It is impressive that he has been able to pull this off and put all of this together just out of nowhere. So for like the wrestling community at the time, they of course were just like, what is this? This is like the craziest thing we've ever experienced like within our community. And so yeah, it is pretty impressive. And as far as wrestling goes, this is like – This story is like history making stuff. So like I was saying before, it was kind of surprising that I have never heard of this story because – and as Melissa said, like how have you not? Because this is kind of a big deal story, right? Especially if you are any kind of a fan of wrestling or know anything about that kind of thing. And of course because it involves – a DuPont family member. so And because Steve Carell was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture for the Foxcatcher movie. I There are several it. different ways that you could have heard of this story <laughs> that didn't have to do with wrestling. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, my mind is blown. I haven't watched the movie yet. I was it's waiting good. until I was finished uh, working on this episode. So I can't wait to be able to sit down and watch that. But yeah, so we're going to get right back into the rest of this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Sure, it's no longer winter, but does it really feel like spring? We're still having cooler mornings and figuring out what to wear can be difficult when the only thing that stays the same is that the weather is always changing. Lucky for us and for you, Faraday makes it way easier by making the perfect clothes for all the seasons. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call on the Faraday brand website to find your perfect wardrobe. Faraday makes high-quality, timeless clothing with modern design and functionality, like my new favorite, the Delaney shirt dress. It feels like a nightgown, but it's chic, and in this in-between weather, I can just pair it with a denim jacket in the morning, and I can ditch it later if it gets warmer. It's like the perfect mix of a shirt dress, but with the structure of a button-down. It's not only so comfortable, but it makes it look like I have my act together, which is truly a miracle. All of Faraday's pieces feel like they could have been made just for you. Whether it's the perfect print or a set that fits like it was made yesterday, Faraday makes clothing you actually want to wear. And Faraday is so committed to the quality of their clothes that there's a lifetime guarantee of quality. They will actually replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. Head to FaradayBrand.com and use code MOMSANDMURDER at checkout to snag 20% off all your new spring staples. That's code MOMSANDMURDER at Faraday, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y, Brand.com for 20% off. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? 
Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about John DuPont and his new obsession. (laughs) His new obsession with uh, wrestling. Specifically Olympic wrestling. As we said before, he was very interested in making it to the Olympics himself and was not successful. But he did eventually establish an Olympic wrestling club, and he called the club Team Foxcatcher. So as we said before, this guy always had lofty goals. And in this was no different uh, in this case of this wrestling club that he created. He wanted to fill all of the U.S. wrestling team with his own wrestlers. So essentially he wants to have control and ownership of the entire wrestling team for the country, which is just crazy because he isn't like a big wrestling background person. So like you would expect this from somebody who was like a big name in wrestling that like was going to make this their legacy. But like John DuPont has no – like he doesn't have any – Anything Why didn't he get in into racing cars? I don't know. He right, that doesn't make any right. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like you already have an in there. Like they're gonna have to respect you there and want you to be a part of it. He could have been on no Jeff kidding. Gordon's. Like, what is it called? The team that like changes tires or something. Yeah, he probably wouldn't have liked to do that, but he could have. Well, he could have gone on ride. Could have done whatever maybe. he wanted he to. Gone on ride alongs around the track or something. Missed opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> So he became so invested and proud of this wrestling team that he even flew the Foxcatcher flag above the American flag. So John had his whole farm, which was now known as Foxcatcher Farms, and he would invite prospective wrestlers for his team to come take a tour and see if they were interested in what he had to offer. And 
he actually had quite a lot to offer. He was willing to give wrestlers um, compensation between $400 to $1,000 a month. Now, it wasn't legal to pay wrestlers to compete for a specific club, so John said that these payments were going to be for training costs, and he also paid for their travel expenses and let them fly to tournaments on his private jet. So keep in mind, most of these guys who came to tour the farm were just so impressed by the extravagance of it all, and it really just seemed like a dream come true to them. Many of them were very poor, and these were guys who were just scrounging change up to get a cheap cheeseburger. So John's generosity and these amazing facilities were just – they couldn't imagine, you know, having yeah. this type of life, you know, as these young wrestlers. So staying at the farm and training there would allow these men to focus on wrestling without having to worry about how they were going to be able to provide for themselves. John said that he felt a ton of pride and pleasure in seeing these kids that he's known for years come to train at Foxcatcher and then go on to become these champions. But the fact that John was paying the wrestlers was kind of a big deal. At the time, wrestlers in small clubs may not get paid any money at all. So if a wrestler was in the top 30 on the U.S. national team, they might get paid anywhere from $250 to $650 by USA Wrestling. But it was really nothing compared to what John was doing. What he did really was a life-changing thing in the wrestling community. For example, a two-time World Cup gold medalist named John Guerra used to compete with the New York Athletic Club and wasn't paid anything. But after he was recruited to Team Foxcatcher, he was paid $1,000 a month Plus, he was able to live rent-free on John's estate. He later said that he felt his best chance at becoming an Olympian was by going to Foxcatcher. He said it was so impressive, it was really a wrestler's dream. And that's exactly what John DuPont wanted. He wanted the kids to know that they'd be taken care of if they came there. And you have to think about like these hobbies, if they're trying to, I'm using hobbies, air quotes, to become Olympians, they have to sacrifice so much. Like all their free time is going to training. Plus right. they have that to work. That is their like, full-time job. Yeah. Exactly. Very rarely did they have, you know, do they have these things where they're able to just focus on that. That's where like you see the Olympians who have sponsors and stuff like that, but so many of them don't. And it's all like they're having to figure out ways to do it. And John's literally opening this world to them and saying like, I just want you to train. That's all you need to do. It's amazing for them. But of course, John's methods were frowned upon by other wrestling clubs. First of all, there really aren't that many Olympic wrestling clubs to begin with. And for the most part, there really wasn't a lot of recruiting in the wrestling world. So when John comes in and he takes this aggressive approach to the sport and starts recruiting wrestlers from other clubs, it sort of felt like he was poaching their wrestlers more than anything. One of the top clubs actually lost nine of their wrestlers to John's team. And how are you going to keep people on your team if this guy's right. paying for everything this. for yeah. you to do? Yeah. So John disagreed that he was doing anything wrong and said that other clubs had really done this for years, but on a smaller scale. He thought that they were just mad that he was doing it on this larger scale and mad that he, quote, turned the game around on them. So John eventually approached USA Wrestling, which is the national governing body of wrestling, and proposed a bit of a partnership. Basically, John wanted to be the place that USA Wrestling sent their athletes to train. USA Wrestling was actually keen on this idea because they couldn't afford to pay wrestlers enough to live on, so they were constantly losing great wrestlers who had to leave and find real jobs. This posed a problem for the USA who really wanted to beat Russia in championships, but could never get a good enough team together. 
So USA Wrestling thought of John as this philanthropist who could provide the funding necessary to keep these good wrestlers around with the ultimate goal of beating Russia. John donated about $3.3 million to USA Wrestling to help with the cost of the U.S. national team's program between the years of 1987 and 1995. In exchange, the Foxcatcher name was put on warm-up suits and on the title of National Freestyle Championships. By 1991, John had more than 85 wrestlers that used his facility regularly, with 19 of them being top Olympic-worthy wrestlers. Although John was well on his way to achieving his dream of having the biggest Olympic wrestling club and essentially controlling the entire national wrestling team, he was plagued with constant paranoia. John was frequently preoccupied with the notion that people were out to get his money. He really struggled to figure out who his true friends in life were versus those who were just using him for one reason or another. A little paranoia can be normal and healthy in all of us, but the paranoia that John experienced was beyond what would typically be considered normal. For instance, John's mother passed away in 1988, and as we said earlier, he was extremely close with her as a child and up until the day she died. But her death caused a change in the behavior of John. He began using alcohol and cocaine and taking pills. And he also became more reclusive and sometimes would only leave his house once every six months. During these times, the wrestlers that lived on the estate would take shifts hanging out with John and just making sure he was okay. Other examples of John's erratic behavior include two occasions where he drove a new Lincoln Continental into a pond on his estate. The first time after he drove the car into the pond, everybody just assumed that he did it by accident. You know, maybe he was going too fast, lost control, no big deal. So he got a loaner car from Lincoln, and the very next day, he drove the loaner car into the pond. But this time, he had a high-ranking official from USA Wrestling in the back seat, and (gasps) yeah, so – Why would you do this? Nobody knows why he did this. He just did. He just drove a car with another person in it into the pond, and he got out and swam to shore, but his passenger struggled to get out of the situation alive, which is crazy, right? Like, this is a huge dream of his to have all this wrestling stuff going on. Like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? (laughs) And of all people to be like, hey, we, you know, I'm doing all this for the U.S. wrestling thing, and they're like, hmm, it's kind of a kind of a weird relationship but it's okay because it's working out and next thing you know he like <laughs> drives one takes of the officials, you on a like, cruise yeah that's yeah. terrifying that's crazy yeah so john also did many other bizarre things like he would set up cameras to record empty fields that were on the estate and then he would spend hours watching the footage literally just watching the grass and the trees blow around because it's an empty field on the estate no one's out there nothing's happening right but if he was watching these videos and he thought he saw something in the tree line that looked a little strange he would go ask one of the other wrestlers if they saw it too so the wrestlers became more and more aware of john's increasingly strange behaviors and one of the wrestlers said that john just lost it He started talking to the walls, and he would even think that animals were coming out of them. As he lost his grip on reality more and more, John became convinced of things that just weren't true, such as believing that there were hidden passages in his house. So he would go to these extreme measures, like he set up razor wire to block the entrances and exits to these passages that he was convinced were uh, secret hideaways, I guess, in his home. And he started carrying around a loaded assault rifle and would even randomly shoot at things. 
John started dressing in draped red clothing at one point and claimed that he was the Dalai Lama. And he also said that the clocks on treadmills were taking him back in time. So this paranoia uh, actually led him to having all of the treadmills removed from the gym and his training facilities. He believed that there were ghosts in the mansion walls and that bugs were crawling under his skin, sometimes causing him to scratch himself until he bled. To those watching this upsetting downward spiral, it seemed like there were just really two sides to John. There was the regular side, and then there was this paranoid side. No one knew what they were even going to get with him, so everybody was constantly walking on eggshells, really just scared to set him off. But there was one person in particular that managed to keep John on a more positive wavelength. One of the wrestlers, Dave Schultz, genuinely liked and cared for John as a friend. He was able to see the good in him, and John was always more normal, air quotes there, in Dave's presence. Oh my goodness. If he wasn't rich, people would right. not, I hate to say put up with this, but they would just be, they would like, be sounding I'm out of here. Yeah. Right. But this is like everything is being paid for. And you can understand why they would stick around because they need this too. You know, right. you scratch my back, I scratch yours. But oh my gosh, like this this blew my mind when you start getting to, you know, the treadmills are taking you back in time and everything. Right. Like something is really going on and it's it's not good. But even having this friend and Dave couldn't stop John's decline into this crippling paranoia. So throughout all of 1995, his condition becomes worse than ever. He started developing obsessions with specific wrestlers and randomly just develops a phobia for the color black. The phobia got so bad that no one was allowed to wear black clothes, have a black car, and he also sold all of his black horses. So one wrestler said he thought that maybe John was afraid of death and he associated the color black with death. I mean, that's like trying to to figure this out. Right. Like that's got to be the closest anybody could get because none of it makes sense. And things really just keep getting worse. In March of that year, John actually fired three of the black wrestlers in the club and told them that Foxcatcher was now a KKK organization. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this comes out of nowhere. And one of the wrestlers was really just beside himself about it because he was already a world champion and he was a major asset to this team. So it makes no sense that he would he would cut him. And this incident is finally where people start thinking something is seriously wrong with John. For many of the wrestlers who had been putting up with all the weirdness and the treadmills and all this stuff, this part, this is what was the last straw finally for them. So some of the players approach John and try to talk to him and say, hey, people think you're racist. You're cutting the black people on the team. You're being racist. And he responds that, it doesn't have anything to do with race. He didn't care about that. He just couldn't handle the color black. I wow. Mean, I, speechless. No. I mean, this is just beyond something you can understand. Uh, one of the black wrestlers who got fired actually went to the USA Wrestling to complain and told them that he was being discriminated against, but they did nothing to help. USA Wrestling later admitted that they did nothing because they wanted to continue to get John's money. His financial contributions had completely changed the sport, and they relied on him, which, ugh. So Foxcatcher Farms was truly the best option for guys who wanted to make a career out of wrestling. I guess unless you're black, because he literally cannot right. take the color black. So messed up. So most of them felt like they had no choice but to stay there, even after the scandal with the termination of these black wrestlers. Even though people stayed, 
they avoided John as much as possible. There was a small group of wrestlers who still did interact with John, and one of them was his friend, maybe his only friend, Dave. But on January 26, 1996, John's erratic behavior became impossible to look past and ignore. Shortly after 3 p.m., John arrived back at his mansion and locked himself inside. He told his security guards that the police would be coming soon, but he instructed them not to let the officers inside. A short time later, more than 70 police and SWAT members showed up at the estate, many of whom knew John personally since he was such a big supporter and contributor to police agencies in the area. The officers also knew that John had a huge safe in the home with a vault door that he could lock himself inside of and hunker down. So a negotiator came to speak with John, but his responses were incoherent and nonsensical. He kept saying random things like, I have to sign these diplomatic papers, I'm the head of state, I'm in charge, and it's always going to be that way. So this standoff lasted for over 48 hours, while John repeatedly asked for his attorney. Local and national news media soon swarmed the estate to get the story on what was happening at the infamous Foxcatcher Farms, but John would not emerge. Finally, authorities came up with a plan to get him out of the house. They shut off his heat and waited for John to get cold enough to come outside. It took two days, but eventually the inside of the house was freezing, and John asked the negotiators if he could go outside and turn his boiler on. They said sure, as long as he wasn't armed. So John opened his back door and walked outside toward the boiler. At that moment, a Newtown police officer approached John and ended up having to tackle him after John tried to run into a greenhouse. It was there that John was informed that he was being placed under arrest for the charge of first-degree murder, and he was taken to jail wearing his Team Foxcatcher t-shirt. And boy, oh boy, is there so much more to get into in this story. If um, I'm being honest, we are so wrong for cutting it off here. We, we are, are just so wrong so for cutting sorry. it off here. Um, but yeah, there is so much to get into in this story, uh, as I said before. And we do have a part two that's coming at you next week. And I think there is even more information in part two somehow than there was in part one. Oh but my um, gosh. Yeah, so we will be continuing the story next week. And that is unfortunately where we're ending it today. I say unfortunately because I'm so excited to continue on telling the story. So. So, yeah, it's going to be tough to wait another week to get part two out. But, yes, Melissa, this is the craziest story, one of the craziest stories I think I've ever heard. So I've seen the documentary on this and I've seen the movie, and there are still details in here that I had no idea about, just none. And so this is blowing my mind. And I wouldn't say I'm, like, a pro at this story or anything like this, but I felt like I I knew a decent amount. And this is still, I'm like, how how did this happen? Right. It's, it's just wild. There's so, so much to this story. So yeah, please join us again next week where we are going to get into really the uh, meat and potatoes of the crime that took place with Mr. DuPont. So looking forward to that. Um, but for now, we're going to turn the page and do a little last thing before we go. A little silly, a little silliness this week. We did um, a few weeks back we when we had an episode about the art thing that we did and I don't even remember the Isabella what Gardner. That's right. The art museum uh, heist. And at the end of that episode, we sent each other some photos. Um, we texted them to each other and played a little game where we had to um, come up with a name for these paintings. And everybody loved that. They thought it was great. You guys seem to really enjoy having some images on Instagram to follow along with. So we're going to do that again this week, and we're going to make it wrestling related. Melissa came up with this idea that we could send each other pictures of a wrestler, and then we can try and guess what their name is. 
All right, Mandy, I just sent you a uh, wrestler. Ooh. What would you call this wrestler back from, I think he's from the 80s. Okay. Describe so, him to the listening audience first. Elvis from Wish. Elvis from Wish? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty good. Okay. So, yeah, it has to be like – I mean, a, I don't think you can do better than that, can uh, you? No. I feel I like that, that's, his, that's the name I'm giving him. <laughs> yeah. This is the honky-tonk man. Ooh. Roy Wayne Ferris. Okay, it has an Elvis on his jacket. Why would they call him the honky-tonk man? That's like – that doesn't even make sense. But he also has like the Elvis hair. Like all of it should be like Elvis related, rock and roll something, not honky tonk, man. I don't think honky tonk when I think Elvis. What is happening? Mandy, what did you just send me? I sent you the person on the um, left. Which one is it? Well, okay. I, I believe that. Yes. Yes. Because I saw multiple photos. It's the, it's the person on the left is the guy that you're looking at. Honestly, he's wearing a green getup, but he kind of looks like Prince. How about the artist oh. never known as Prince? <laughs> um so his name is hornswoggle ma'am no it's not (laughs) what is that about i don't know i don't know what hornswoggle that's his name that's wrong that isn't true i hate it let's not do that one (laughs) i don't like (laughs) i'm just kidding okay i'm trying to send you my next one mine is let me see we have oh whoa yeah. Okay. What is happening in this photo? Describe it to the listening audience. Okay. This man has hair on every inch of his body except for his head. Except for his head. <laughs> it's a choice. <laughs> and he's holding like what looks like, I don't even know what kind of animal it is. It doesn't have a nose, but it has a green tongue and so does he. I don't like anything about They're this. They're matchy matchy. Why is he sticking his tongue out? It's green. Why wouldn't he? Why is it green? Did he lick the thing? I don't know, Melissa. I hate this photo. I hate this image. This is an image you can't unsee. <laughs> well, good for you. You've seen it now. What would you name this? I don't know. The green liquor. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Honestly, that's accurate. But you had part of it right. This is George the Animal Steel. Ew. What? No. I do George not. George the Nightmare Steel. Uh-uh. Not I a do fan. not. I do not like that. Okay. Not here. okay. I'm sending you the next one. Okay. This one's a kind of no. a trick. <laughs> this is kind of a trick. Hold on. Okay. Mandy sent me. <laughs> Mandy, actually, if you were in wrestling, I just think you might not like how you were saying you have imposter syndrome. This is how I would expect you to dress. Yes. Like so nobody could see you. So this is, I assume like a chicken. Is that a rooster? I don't know the difference. I, I think, yeah, it's a rooster. Okay, so I'm going to name this Any Cluck Will Do. Mandy <laughs> Andy Cluck Will Do. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so this is actually not a wrestler, um, but this thing is called the Gobbledygooker. <laughs> Ew, I don't like that and, for some uh, reason. <laughs> yeah, so the Gobbledygooker, I guess the chicken suit, never wrestled. But the guy under the chicken suit named Hector Guerrero – he was a wrestler. So I guess I don't really know where the gobbledygooker came from, but apparently now like it's still like it's a thing and other people have worn this like chicken suit and I don't know. You just go I don't know what they do Does in it. Does it bring you good luck? If you are a wrestler and you know what this gobbledygooker business is about, please let us know. 
But like not too many details because if there's a long backstory and it gets weird, I don't right. I don't need to know that. Right. This is enough for me. Yeah. Mandy, I just sent you my last one. Okay. Let's see. Ooh. Okay. Don't think too hard about this one. I really believe you can get this one. I will tell you he joined a tag team group named Money Inc. Okay. I'm going to call him Mafia Man. Okay, so this is a guy in a short sleeve business shirt or a button down with suspenders. The sleeves rolled up. Hat. Yeah. With the sleeves rolled. So you know he's serious. He's also wearing glasses, which doesn't feel like a great idea for wrestling. And so you're naming him what? What did I say? I don't even know. <laughs> I, don't I, like, even I know it wasn't right, but I don't think it was terrible. Mafia, man. Oh, mafia. Okay. Well, kind of. This is IRS. Um, his oh, name oh. is Nick Rotunda. Oh, my so, gosh. Yes. Kind of right. looks. That's exactly what I picture everyone that works for the IRS looking like. Right? Yes. Just angry and scary. I've had very helpful people at the IRS, I will say, but like I'm always terrified and by the time I talk to them, I'm like, oh, it's the person that does the final approvals is what he looks like. Yes. His move is the airplane spin, but this is IRS. I don't know how well he does, but he takes at least 30% of your profit. So, all right, Mandy. All right, Melissa. Is that it? Yeah, that was it. Oh, before we go, next week, send us – I'll have something on Instagram. Send us what you think my wrestling name would be or Mandy's wrestling name. And we're going to read the best ones or, you know, there's – depending on how many we get. We'll read them on the show next week and maybe we'll send stickers or something for one of them. I can't commit myself to too much. I'm excited Um, though. I'm excited to see what listeners come up with for us. Yeah. So if Mandy, what her wrestling name would be and what my wrestling name would be – and think of clues like corn nuts, uh, height, <laughs> different things. <laughs> Chickens, all the little you got things. it all. Yes. You got it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be fun. All right, guys. Well, I am so excited to come back next week. Can't wait. Uh, and we will see you then. Same time, same place, same story. Yeah. <laughs> Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.